0: Wendy finds out she is pregnant again. The feeling hit Wendy with a dull, cavernous shock. She thought that if a railway carriage was sentient, it would feel this way when coupled with a locomotive. She was on the toilet. Her period was late. She knew. She felt nothing but that shock. A man gets a job she thought, which will pay him well, but which he does not want. Or, more likely, a man gets conscripted for a war to defend another man's homeland. She shrugged, then laughed, rubbing her forehead. Time to pop out another one, breeder. Tom's face rose in her mind, and she felt a strange starfish of pain deep within her. She had been fantasizing about Tom for some time. It was quite gruesome, actually. Greek. Incestuous. She fought with Tom, overtly or covertly, every time they met. She found herself forever driven to test him. It was very primitive. Wendy needed to be sure that the man she desired could never be broken. Never. Ever. So she had to test him. Forever. I mean, what if he has gotten weak overnight? The why of the testing was never really explored. She had, lost in the hedgerows of her hidden heart, one of the deep secrets of femininity, which is a bottomless pool of acidic contempt for male weakness. In Wendy's world, English men were like England itself, a sinking island surrounded by this rising sea. It was only by marrying an Englishman that Wendy had really understood the value of Spanish men. Sure, they were heartless Mediterranean bastards, but they did not defer, and were not sarcastic and spiteful, and did not control you, and did not become embarrassed by everything you did, and they could fuck you to next Tuesday if they had a mind. That was easy. Call a British man weak, he gets huffy and sarcastic. Call a Spanish man weak, he glowers and growls and fucks you the next Tuesday. Tom could fuck me the next Tuesday, thought Wendy all too often. She felt when standing next to her brother-in-law like a seething, volcanic, female sexual object. She was tense, itchy, weak-kneed. She just wanted to be screwed. To be screwed from behind with her long hair grabbed and pulled like reins. She wanted the squishy thumping. She wanted her face ground into the pillow. She wanted to feel his swinging balls. She wanted his throaty groans, his final maddening thrusts. She wanted to be screwed and she wanted to cry afterwards. She wanted to feel his rower's arms. She wanted him to growl without an accent. Reginald, always fucked with an accent, even when he used his self-consciously dirty words, it was comical. Oh, darling, I am so in love with your vagina. Oh, Reginald, she wanted to laugh back, your pee-pee feels so good in my private parts. Fucking accountant. Wendy wished she had screwed Tom at least once, just so she could imagine that she was pregnant with his child. That she could present him with his child. His child he would have to protect, protect, along with Jocelyn. On the toilet Wendy reached out absently and played with the loose corking around the bathtub. But he would never have me, she thought with a dismal depression, even if I had met him during his legendary days of womanizing. I bet he went for the virginal princesses, the kind who bounced on Daddy's lap the very day before they bounced on old Tommy's. Not a. not a party girl like me, not a flapper hanging on by the flesh of her nails. No, I was destined for a weak man, because I am too strong, too primal. I am a Viking raging through a monastery. Wendy liked that image she reached down with toilet paper and patted herself dry, making sure to stay away from her swollen clitoris. Otherwise, I'll be in here all day. Walking into the kitchen, she felt relief that she was pregnant again and so could eat whatever the hell she wanted. Until the nausea comes, of course. Rifling through the cupboards, she assembled what Reginald used to call her pregnancy platter. Six chocolate-covered digestive biscuits. A block of cheddar, a pickled onion, a glass of milk, a handful of hard candies. Smiling, Wendy brought the tray into the living room. You have to keep your strength up now. As she sat down, she thought she heard... She cocked her head. Nothing from upstairs. Jocelyn was still sleeping. Actually, another child would be good. God knows the single children are weird. Two can play together, cancel each other out. And it will be fun to watch Reginald negotiate with them. Hello, Mr. World Diplomat. Meet Jocelyn and Sally, ages five and three. They are having a dispute over a tin of quality streets. Would you mind sitting down with them to get them sorted? Thanks ever so much. Wendy felt a thrill of oncoming humiliations. She smiled, chewing through another digestive. I wouldn't want to break him if he wasn't so gut. Damned vain. Lord Reg, master of all he surveys, infallible, omniscient, cannot be contradicted. A sniffle ran through her nose as she imagined Reginald coming home one Friday night. His head would be bowed, his hands folded in front of him as he staggered through the door. Oh my God, when I, I really have no idea what I'm doing at that place. What do you mean? Who Thought I could ever be a diplomat. I've never lived overseas. I don't have any foreign friends. I feel like such a fraud. Go on. I live my life for the most part. No, for all of it. As if I know what I'm doing, but I don't. I don't know what I'm doing when. I've been lording it over everyone because I'm terribly anxious, insecure. I can't keep up the pretense. Not anymore. I don't want to. And I'm so terribly sorry for everything I've ever done to you. There's only one thing that I can do to make it up. I've called Tom, and he's coming right over to fuck you till next Tuesday. Wendy's head jerked up from the cushion. Bad nap! Naughty nap! Nap needs a spanking! She put her pregnancy platter down, then unbuckled her belt, slipped her fingers into her underwear, and truly went to town. Gunther returns. Tom did not cry for too long. Practice makes for efficiency. He read the newspaper accounts of the Night of the Long Knives with a mixture of terror and joy. Terror at what the future held, joy, because it was clear, and so now could be averted. He smiled, forgetting his heartbreak, wondering what his brother was up to at that moment. He imagined him, well... No, Tom could not imagine Reginald doing a complete about-face, but he did imagine a terrible hour of doubt and a possible re-evaluation. The most awful thing, he thought, is that the entire future of Reginald's thinking, and possibly of England's fate, will depend on the opinion of the first person Reginald meets after he doubts whoever fills his empty vessel. Struck by a sudden impulse, Tom realized he should call Reginald, do his part to right the sinking ship then he remembered that he didn't know Reginald's work number so he had to call mother Tom jumped up he ran over to the little desk where his telephone was it took three tries not bad to get through the first time the line went dead the second time it rang and rang the third time five minutes later he got through yes demanded his father's impatient voice Actually, thought Tom, I only have to say my father's voice. The impatient is redundant. Hello, father, said Tom. God damn it, cried his father. This tea is too hot. Wait a minute. Tom winced as the receiver clunked against some hard surface, probably the coffee table. All right, said his father after half a minute or so. You want your mother? Sure, sure, but but how are you? Fine, said Quentin shortly. Scalded, but fine. There was a pause. You've read the papers, I assume, said Quentin. Yes, I imagine that Reginald will be horribly busy. (laughs) Well, laughed Quentin harshly. Either he's busy now or you're busy later. Tom frowned, not wanting to follow his father's train of thought. This is abominably expensive, said Quentin. Are you home? I'll have your mother call you back. She's wailing away just now. Is Catherine there? Yes, yes. All right, take care, father. Chin up, said Quentin. The line went dead. Tom jumped when he placed the receiver back in its cradle because it rang again, just as he set it down. "'Hello?' he asked, cautiously, thinking it was probably just a bad line. "'Tom!' cried a voice. Tom's heart leapt. "'Gunther! How are you? "'I'm... what? I I can't say everything over the phone. "'Where are you?' "'I'm in England. You don't have to shout.' "'Good!' Tom smiled, lowering his voice. "'Sorry. Where?' "'Not half an hour from where you are. "'So we can meet, of course.' "'Be home, all right?' "'All right,' said Tom. He waited for a moment, his ear pressed to the receiver. There was just the hiss of voices. Tom shivered as a child. He had thought that ghosts and vampires used the phone lines to get around during the light of day. When Gunther arrived, Tom had already run to the shops to get tea, milk, bread, biscuits, jam and butter. Even by bachelor standards, he was not used to entertaining.' They hugged for a long time on seeing each other. Tom had a European urge to grab the older man's sideburns and kiss him on both cheeks. "'Come on, come in and sit down,' he said, wiping his eyes. "'Still a blubberer, I see,' smiled Gunther. "'I've had an emotional morning.' Gunther saw the newspaper sitting on Tom's ratty sofa. "'Not just that,' said Tom, following his gaze. "'Do you want anything?' "'No.' said Gunther, patting his stomach. They stuffed me to bursting on the plane this morning. Where are you heading? Do you have to work today? Tom shook his head. Nothing happens Saturday. All my rich boys are in the country. Gunther nodded. I was driving here. Just here. Tom smiled. That is very kind. And and sending me to Germany was, well, not kind exactly, but very, I know. Can I move these? Of course, let me. Tom tossed the newspapers to the floor. Ah-ha, uh-huh, murmured Gunther. As one bachelor to another, even though I do not think you will be one as long as I have, you shall have to learn to tidy up in a few years. Youthful charm and good hair will dan the ladies when you're young, but then you must develop sophistication, grooming, and a well-appointed lair. Tom smiled. I haven't been much of the bachelor lately. Gunther nodded soberly. Yes, I know. I have been there too. Germany? When? Why didn't you tell me? Were you there when I was? Yes, but for different reasons, and in different circles. But never mind that. Tell me how it's been since you returned. How it's been? You've got a business, which is good, better than you know. Your friend, Klaus, has joined the Nazi party. Tom stared at him for a moment, then blinked back more tears. I'm going to need some water, he said, getting up. From the kitchen, cranking out a glass of rusty water, he called. That's a real shame. Although, I can't say it's a complete surprise. It's going to be hard for him. Not him, murmured Gunther. Coming back from the kitchen, Tom said, Sorry, never mind. He's become a flight instructor. Tom's jaw dropped. Say, you're kidding. It's all too parallel for words, said Gunther. Did you two discuss this at all? No. Gunther pursed his lips, then laughed. If I were susceptible to the idea that things happen for a reason, I should truly wonder. Well, this won't be the last time. He settled back in the sofa, then glanced down and frowned. This is all going to come off on my suit. That's why I don't wear one. My God, it's like you were raised by gibbons. Anyway, here's the thing. I want to take you to meet Churchill. Tom nodded. Of course you do. I'm serious. You're not the only one who believes there will be a war. Tom pursed his lips and turned his head slightly. That clear, mm? Crystal, clear. I got it in the first paragraph. You wrote about peace in the past tense. Well, I thank you for that. It was a real eye-opener. When did you know? Tom frowned. I think when there were all these paramilitary pilots hanging around the aerodrome and Klaus just thought they were enthusiastic hobbyists with a penchant for matching jackets. He's smart, but dumb. That's like Germans as a whole. They're always surprised when their weird ideas bear weird fruit. Not just Germans, said Gunther. No, no, of course not. Churchill, let me tell you why. We want you to go back to Europe. What? Just for a little while? Not Berlin, then where? France. First Paris, then East. To where? Gunther smiled. To the Rhineland. When? The older man laughed. (laughs) That's what I love about you, Tom. One of the things. It's already a done deal. I never said that. I have a job, a business, and... The German man's grey eyebrows knitted together. And a woman, damn you. Well, yes. Maybe. If I can grovel deeply enough. Gunther put on an outrageous German accent. Your Englanders are perfect gravelers! Gunther, why have you never married? I think you have asked that already, as a child. Answer me now, as an adult. Gunther shrugged. Four reasons. First, I work in a secret sphere, bad for intimacy. Second, I travel a lot. Third, the woman I loved married another. And fourth... That will be a war. Oh, come on, cried Tom, his eyes wide. He took a step back and almost slipped on the newspaper. He pointed down, not now, not after this. Gunther smiled. It was a very, very sad smile. Oh, Tom. One of the hardest wisdoms in this world is understanding the degree to which people are capable of lying to themselves. What? Oh, really? You think that the world will ignore this? The world, said Gunther slowly, is already in the process of ignoring it. Those are just words, and this is the first time I've ever thought of you as paranoid. I wish I were. I deeply wish it. But I know what will be in the Daily Mail this afternoon. Gunther pulled out a piece of paper and handed it to Tom. That's not the whole text, of course, but you know that. Tom read. Herr Adolf Hitler, the German Chancellor, has saved his country. Swiftly and with inexorable severity, he has delivered Germany from men who had become a danger to the unity of the German people and to the order of the state. With lightning rapidity, he has caused them to be removed from high office to be arrested and put to death. The names of the men who have been shot by his orders are already known. Hitler's love of Germany has triumphed over private friendships and fidelity to comrades who had stood shoulder to shoulder with him in the fight for Germany's future. He read the article three times. Gunther sat in silence. When Tom was done, he had to control his urge to crumple up the paper. What do you do, Gunther? He asked, his voice suddenly harsh. I can't... No! "'No, if you want to pull me into this, you have to tell me.' "'Why?' asked Gunther simply. "'What if you're tortured? Don't you trust me? "'Do you think I'm doing something underhanded? "'I saw Reginald from day one, and now he's in the goddamn foreign office!' "'Tom stared. Gunther's voice had risen suddenly, and his face was dark. "'It's about Reginald. It's about Hitler!' said Gunther thickly. I work for Churchill. Tom nodded. You work for Churchill? Look, you don't know this, and it will do you no harm to know, but Churchill has his fingers in the pie in almost every major European capital. He's not some doddering old warmonger good for a historical laugh. He has his own information network, second to none. We are inviting you to join it. You you want me to become a spy for Churchill? Churchill. Gunther shook his head. No, not a spy. You are to do nothing illegal. But I showed your letters about Germany to Churchill and he was very impressed. We get nothing useful from the British ambassador in Germany who is madly pro Hitler, pro appeasement. Everything is biased. We don't know what's going on on the ground. You have a good observing eye. We can't make decisions about Europe if we don't know what's going on over there. Why me? You'd blend in better. I'm needed here. Tom laughed. Oh, oh come on. You go to the front. I'm needed here. Gunther smiled broadly. Quite quite right. I keep forgetting you're all grown up. Well, I am needed because the government wants me to work on a defense system. The government? Who do you work for? Sorry. I work for the government. I moonlight for Churchill. So, where is the great man? Not far. Chartwell. And Tom? Yes? "'Around Churchill, when you even think of the term great man, don't use quotes. "'He knows his own greatness, and thank God. "'We need one man in this island who is not prone to debilitating self-doubt.' "'Tom nodded, then thought for a moment. "'You want me to fly to Paris?' "'Yes. You can get around the quickest in an airplane. "'What is it like these days, city-hopping on the continent? We should be fine for a while. "'We'll register you with the ambassador in Berlin.' "'The Hitlerian appeaser?' "'Gunther shrugged, then stood up slowly. "'Look.' It's not a perfect situation. I actually had some hopes for Klaus. Now it's up to you. And it all comes down to... Tom paused. He handed the piece of paper with the editorial on it back to Gunther. Comes down to what? Comes down to whether I think what happened last night in Germany will change people's minds. Tom, said Gunther, taking him by the shoulders. It is my sad, sad duty to report that most people in this world have no minds to change." Tom stepped back. Sorry? That's rather undemocratic. Well, you know what Churchill has to say about democracy. No. Gunther imitated Churchill reasonably well. Democracy is the worst form of government except for all those others that have been tried. See? That's what I'm worried about, style without substance. What do you mean about people being mindless? Before I cast my lot, I need to know what I'm defending. All right, sighed Gunther. He checked his watch, then sat down. We have time. Will you sit? Not just yet. I'm getting a bicky. He went into the kitchen and returned with a bag of biscuits. How intelligent do you think you are, Tom? Asked Gunther. Pretty intelligent, I think. Who is smarter than you? I mean, that you know. "'How do you mean? Marx? Oh, God, no. Then how?' Gunther paused, then said, "'How many people do you know who would have come to the conclusion that Germany, and peace, was doomed from a two-week visit?' "'Assuming it's so, well, let's say that old Winnie is a pretty intelligent sort. He thinks what you think. "'So if you're wrong, you're in good company. "'Also, I happen to know that you opposed Klaus from the first time you met him, "'and it's no accident that you and he are both training pilots.' Tom snorted uneasily. What are you saying? Fate? Never mind. It's too much. Does anyone see the future except you? I don't mean anything mystical about that. The future from the present. The inescapable from the unconscious, if you like. Who is that intelligent? I got kicked out of Oxford. Oxford produces with the greatest pleasure. appeasers like Reginald and Nazis like Klaus. Perhaps appeasement is great wisdom. No. Perhaps no. You have to be more certain of your worth. Tom took a deep breath. Gunther held his gaze. Tom took another step backwards. All right, so I am intelligent. Who, other than myself, do you share your thoughts with, completely, without frustration? Tom laughed, and there was a little bitterness in it. (laughs) No, no one. So, what if you're brilliant? What if you are surrounded by dribbling idiots? Then wouldn't I be too valuable to send to Germany where they're killing their enemies? (laughs) Sorry, that was funnier in my head. A man with an IQ of 200 is not twice as smart as a man with an IQ of 100. A man with an IQ of 100 is not twice as smart as a moron with an IQ of 50. It's an order of magnitude. You have as much in common with the average man as the average man has with a drooling idiot. You are alone. Brilliant souls have to find each other. We're like water in the desert. Stop pretending that the average person has your capacity. Tom opened his mouth and shook his head as if to clear his ears of water. And it's even worse than that, continued Gunther. It is the man with the IQ of, say, 125 who is the most dangerous. All he does is run around comparing himself with the average man. He thinks he is so much smarter. He looks down at his feet and feels tall, not noticing how far below the stars he actually is. These are the pretentious men, the men who love to order others around, the men who only think they're intelligent, the vain men, the men who always lead mankind to disaster. And and you have more in common with the average man than the pretentious man. The average man looks at a mug and says, Aha, a mug! The pretentious man looks at a mug and says, "Aha! it only looks like a mug to you because your intellect is limited and you are so easily fooled by your senses. It is far, far more than that. It is a con game. The genius looks at the mug and says, a mug is a mug is a mug, and goes on to more worthy intellectual pursuits than trying to con the average man about what a mug is. And as an intellectual, you are in fact surrounded, not by common men, but rather pretentious men, those who for the sake of vanity are even more stupid than the moron who at least knows what a goddamn mug is all right said tom holding up his hands he had never seen gunther so angry sorry it's not you it's just that when you look at the newspaper and think that somehow people will see what you see and act on it my god i mean look at what hitler has done in the past 18 months imprisoned thousands in concentration camps abolished all civil liberties murdered opponents he's a fucking thug And still we want to toady and negotiate. It's like the police going to a gangster and saying, tell us your complaints and we shall address them. The main complaint that the gangster has is that the police exist in the first place. How could that negotiation possibly work? I truly dislike that when we threw God out of public life, we threw Satan out as well. But evil exists. It exists and it walks the earth and it's coming for us and I truly regret that we shall have to save the fools as well as ourselves. Tom suddenly remembered walking through Hyde Park and saying to himself, I would save the average man, but not the intellectuals. How does Churchill know me? From the Oxford debate last year. His son tried to get the resolution overturned, and it came back worse. Not a Tom I remember. He said, how does that boy know all this? And I said, I sent him to Germany on your coin, Winston. And he laughed and said, then it was money well spent. We shall all have to have a chat when you return. And so I have returned. And now we shall be off to Chartwell. All right, Gunther, said Tom. Let me get dressed properly. Tom disappeared into the bedroom. The telephone rang. Can you get that? Called Tom. Gunther picked up the receiver. Tom? asked a voice, a very familiar voice. No, Ruth, said Gunther. It's me. Oh, God, Gunther, said Ruth. What are you doing there? Gunther glanced at Tom's bedroom door. Saving him, he said softly. Gunther and Tom go to meet Churchill. Churchill. Tom whistled when he saw Gunther's car parked out front. Nice, eh? smiled Gunther. M-G-P-A two-seater, I borrowed it. All right, said Tom as they got in. Any tips? Well, tell me what you know about Churchill. He's... Well, he's the last great romantic. He's against Indian self-rule. Gunther's lips tightened. What, asked Tom, he's not? We'll come back to that, go on. He was born in the... What, 1880s? 1874. He was captured in the Boer War. He escaped and made his way through hundreds of miles of enemy territory, sleeping in trains. It made him a celebrity. His father's name was Randolph. He was an MP like Winston. His wife's name is Clementine. He quit the Conservative Party in 1931 over Indian self-rule. He now sits in Parliament as an independent. He writes prodigiously. He spends the morning in bed writing and dictating. He drinks moderately, but constantly His mother was American, fairly irresponsible if memory serves. She died of two broken ankles. He's a free trader, but not a classical liberal. Believes in the market, doesn't believe in complete laissez-faire. One of the most powerful speakers of our century. Argues for rearmament. Oh, cried Tom, as Gunther's car shuddered to a halt for some lights. That's an argument of his I liked about Versailles. He said that there was no way to get money out of Germany after the war. If we demand money, they'll just print more and devalue it. If we demand goods, we'll harm our own industry. If a million German shoes arrive on our shores, what happens to domestic shoemakers? I thought that was very clever. And sweet Lord, the man can make me cry. He is very passionate. He has a way of framing things which remind me that I am part of a larger story. The story of England, of civilization, the world. That everyday matters don't really matter. He makes me want to take up arms in a good fight. Not arms arms, spiritual arms. The truth. Oh, and the Dardanelles. Gunther nodded. The Dardanelles. Churchill was head of the Navy, first lord of the Admiralty, sure. In 1915, he wanted to take the Dardanelles with ships, but they turned back and the land troops were massacred. Tens of thousands of men. He had to resign. And he ended up back in the trenches as an officer. His great physical courage. Not particularly religious. He is a great man. Gunther nodded. That he is. All right, I can't give you the definitive history, but you've got to get the story straighter. Churchill goes quite mad if people say that he is against Indian self-rule. He would never accept a debate at that level. If I were against self-rule, he says, how could I serve in parliament, for that represents British self-rule. He's not against Indians. He is against religious extremism. He thinks that advocating Indian self-rule indicates a complete lack of imagination, and inability to truly conceive a people and culture utterly different from our own. He served in India in the cavalry when he was a very young man. He's lived there unlike most of the soft-minded men in his old party. He knows what would happen if the British withdrew. The war between the Hindus and Muslims would erupt again and tens, possibly hundreds of thousands of people would be murdered. Civil war, that is all he is trying to avoid. And no credible answer has been raised to that problem. So he's not against Indian self-rule, he's against religious murder which I think is an entirely supportable position. All right, said Tom. And, said Gunther, don't even mention the Dardanelles unless you've done a hell of a lot more research than I have on it. I don't follow the story fully. Churchill was overridden by another man. The admiral sailing the fleet turned back against orders on the first sign of opposition. It was a disaster, but it was a complicated one. Churchill took the bullet for England because he didn't want the sorry state of Navy organization and discipline revealed during a terrible war. But the man knows his navy. Got it. And rearmament. For God's sake, don't try to debate him on anything that is in the newspapers. He'll eat you alive. He's very funny, but it hurts. He's not for rearmament. He is for defending England. If there were no credible threats, he would not argue for arms spending. He did nothing of the sort throughout the 1920s. Why not? Because no one and nothing threatened England. Now he says enemies are forging their arms and everyone thinks he is a warmonger. It's maddening. Those kinds of debates are pointless. He won't even enter into them. One does not blame the doctor for the illness, he says, nor the surgeon for wielding the knife. And you can't get more out of him. Has he said anything about my father? Asked Tom. He stared out the window. He had been terrified at first. Now he could not wait to meet Churchill. Not in detail. I mentioned that you were Quentin Spencer's son. He said only, those shopkeepers will be the end of us. Huh. What did he mean? I'm no prophet, but I think he means... He's talked about this only a few times. It's quite terrifying, so he keeps it close to his chest. It's all about the warrior class versus the merchant class. The aristocracy is the original warrior class. It's all very complicated. They have an entire system for training their sons to be warriors. Grueling sports, separation from the mother, harsh discipline, a rigid hierarchy. He knows that they are a parasitic class in peacetime. He's quite complacent about that, though, because as he says, we know when to draw our swords. They know an enemy when they see one. That is the boarding school system. Organized cruelty. You are oppressed, then you become the oppressor. You've been a bastard, so you know a bastard when you see one, overseas, like Hitler. But that's all gone by the wayside now. War is considered obsolete, and the middle class businessmen have taken over. Gunther laughed. They use the word war in the most ridiculous ways. A war on poverty on unemployment, on alcohol. They know how to balance their books and spend other people's money, but they lack imagination, international intelligence. They have had little lives of little rationalities. They have no conception of evil. They are narrow pragmatists. When they hear rearm, they hear go into debt. They hear harm the economy. They do not hear save the country or defend the people. They have forgotten if they ever knew that the government is, by its very nature, an agency of violence. It is a social institution with a monopoly on legal force. It is, fundamentally, an agency of war. The warrior class know this. The merchant class treats government as if it is a sort of business with a budget, customers, a balance sheet, and five-year plans. That is nonsense. It is not a business. It has armies and navies. It has no competition. It throws people in jail. It rules a quarter of the globe. It is not a business. Running it as a business is about as sensible as running a business like a government. It's all quite ridiculous. The merchant class negotiate with each other under one consistent law. They only know how to operate under the umbrella of enforced law. Gunther's hands were white on the wheel. But that is not how the world works. The world outside of local law courts. Countries exist in a state of nature. There is no real international law. They want to negotiate with Hitler for Europe as if they were negotiating with BMW for widgets. It's insane. Utterly the wrong approach. The wrong sphere. You can't invade BMW if you don't get the contract. You can't negotiate with a madman gathering an army together. The merchant class doesn't understand this. They are untrained. They lack imagination. They cannot see evil. That's why Churchill said these shopkeepers will be the end of us. That's started Tom then stopped. Gunther laughed. Oh, Don't even try, Tom. Don't comment on his ideas until you've had a chance to absorb them. It would be the height of vanity. All right. But what about the League of Nations? Gunther smiled. I'll let him answer that if it comes up. He'd probably shoot me dead if he knew I was paraphrasing him to this degree as it is, so forget about that. Let's talk about something else. Tell me about this woman. Tom looked forlorn and related the sad, short story of Jacqueline. And so it was that they passed the time of the drive. Chartwell was a beautiful home in the old-style English brick honeycomb manner. It sprawled in a large L-shape, with well-positioned and well-trimmed ivy and bushes softening the brusque geometry of its brickwork. As they pulled up to Chartwell, Gunther said, there's one more story that might be useful to know. There are a number of terms which cannot be used in Parliament, insults. A few years ago, a new Labour MP used a whole barrage of them against Churchill. Afterwards, the head of his party took him aside and said, look chap, that's really not on. You have to drive down to Chartwell to apologize. So the man took the two-hour trip down from London. When he arrived, Churchill's butler let him in saying that the great man was in the privy. The young Labour MP went upstairs and stood outside the toilet apologizing profusely. Churchill said, wait, wait, I can only take one shit at a time. (laughs) Gunther roared with laughter. Can you imagine coming up with that gem? (laughs) when Taking a crap. Unbelievable. So remember, he's the last romantic, perhaps, but he's also pretty earthy. Not a German romantic, but an English one. Gunther parked and they got out of the car. Tom smoothed his hair. Gunther grinned, looking at him. Tom shrugged and smiled. All right, all right, it's not a date, he said. Come on, said Gunther, taking his arm. They walked up to the ivy-overgrown front door, Gunther rapped on the black wrought iron knocker. A butler opened it. Hello, David, said Gunther. Is he ready for us? Yes, sir, replied David, stepping aside to let them in. He's in the garden. He's mad about his garden, said Gunther. Leave your shoes on. They went into the garden, and Tom saw a bald, thick-set man of about sixty, kneeling against a wall, slapping bricks into place, knocking them down with the handle of a trowel, then scraping away the mortar with the blade. Winston, cried Gunther. Churchill got up with surprising spryness, Tom thought, for a man of his age. Winston, may I introduce Tom Spencer? Pleased to meet you, said Churchill, shaking his hand. And the same, thanks... "'For your hospitality,' stammered Tom. Churchill grinned. "'I very much enjoyed the reports of your debate at Oxford last year. "'They were blow to our cause and had all the elements of high drama. "'Brother versus brother. I wish I had been there.' "'I'm sure I would have done better if you were,' said Tom. "'Unlikely, but very kind. "'It sounds as if you acquitted yourself very well. "'But come on, let's have some lunch.' He glanced down at his hands. "'Sorry about the mess. I lost track of time. "'A deplorable habit, but I'm too old to shake it. "'We'll wait in the dining room.' "'Churchill nodded, then turned on his heels and went into the house. "'He came down after changing and washing his hands. "'He asked his butler for some port, sandwiches, and a cigar. "'Gunther agreed to some wine. Tom declined. "'Churchill laughed at this. (laughs) "'My God, but your generation is a healthy-minded lot.' "'That's why I find this appeasement business so strange. "'You exercise, watch your waistlines like brides, "'refrain from alcohol and tobacco as if you were athletes, "'and then you want to appease Hitler. "'It's most confusing. "'I should be on your side. "'I live poorly and am surprised to have made it this far. "'I doubt I shall reach 70. "'My father died young. "'I thought I would burn bright and short, "'but here I am with little life left "'and I live for the future.' You lot, with your lives ahead of you, live for the moment. Tom nodded. It was hard to assimilate these rapid thoughts. Something like listening to Gunther in high dudgeon. The port and cigars were brought. Churchill cut one and lit it, puffing contentedly. So, Gunther tells me that you might be interested in putting your shoulder to the wheel of our little cause. Yes, sir, said Tom, leaning forward in his chair. He was about to go on, but realized that he had answered the question. Why? asked Churchill. It's scarcely a popular cause. I I think that there will be war. Churchill nodded. Is it inevitable? For me? I don't know. I think so. Why? Because no one sees it coming. Well, not no one, but everyone that counts. (laughs) Not to say that Churchill held up his hand. Please, I know that I am far from the center of power, with no chance of approaching it in the foreseeable future. We must always deal with facts, young man. Facts give strength. Do you think that it is inevitable? Churchill paused. He and Gunther exchanged glances. Gunther nodded. Churchill took another pull on his cigar, sipped, his port, almost delicately, and said, It is inevitable that these two systems of thought, totalitarian and capitalistic, are locked in mortal combat in men's minds. The post-war period has not been kind to capitalism. Property rights, which are the foundation of a civil society, have fallen into disrepute and are everywhere in retreat. Men who profit from destroying property rights advance everywhere in endless implacable lines. Dictators, fascists, socialists, communists. I have no choice but to fight them because they would be the first to cut my throat if they ruled here. They claim the right of the common good, which is always the death of the individual. So these two systems of thought, the supremacy of the individual versus the supremacy of the group, are destined to be at war, probably for the remainder of our century at least. This war will be primarily for men's minds and hearts, which is where the most bloody conflicts always occur. It is occurring now, in England as we speak, and those on our side are falling in endless rows. The collectivists have a fast and unmovable grip on the mental life of this island. The collectivists and the pragmatists. The collectivists want to end capitalism and democracy, and substitute the rule of the group as personified by one charismatic individual. It is the cult of modernity. It is far from modern. The pragmatists want to defend capitalism and democracy, not because they are good in and of themselves, but just because we are used to them, It is a most contemptible argument. No one rouses themselves to feats of martial courage for the sake of history alone. Ideas do not gain truth simply by adding years to them, and of course it is contradictory. They say that our system is good because it is old, but say that we must respect the Nazis because they are elected. But Nazism is a statist virulence left in two years old, and surely should bow to the weights of millennia which our institutions possess, but they never think so clearly." The pragmatists have two great weaknesses, weaknesses that shall surely undo us. The first is that they are unable to reason from first principles. They do not value freedom, but England. They do not defend morality, but history. This is an utterly amoral position and cannot be defended with any resolution. The second weakness is that they always try to measure their decisions based on results. They try to decide whether to rearm based on how rearmament will affect the economy, or how Herr Hitler would perceive our rearming, or how it might affect international stability, or what our allies might think of it, or whether it might offend Signor Mussolini, or if it will get them reelected They are the most dishonorable rabble I have ever seen in my life. I would give my eye teeth to have five ex-servicemen in high office. Not that it is always wise to have soldiers go and play at politics, but it would be a joy beyond belief to deal with people to whom words like honour and integrity have some meaning. If England faces even a potential danger, then we must rearm. The first duty of elected leaders is to protect their citizens, not to play with socialist schemes for the betterment of the poor, not to worry about balanced budgets and the effects of military spending on trade. It is not to make their citizens wealthy or give them jobs or tend to them in old age. The first duty of a government is to protect its citizens from abuse, both domestic and foreign. When danger threatens, you do not cast your eyes over your accounts. You do not try to guess the consequences of funding adequate armed forces. You do not worry about re-election. You lead. Even if your followers do not like your choices, you act to defend the nation. Churchill was puffing hard on his cigar and waving his port. Tom said, Do you think that the present administration is capable of defending our nation? Churchill narrowed his eyes and replied, I have to be sure of your discretion. Tom nodded. I cannot risk a loose tongue, young man. He continued, his voice sharpening. When people ask you how you spent your weekend, I will not have you saying that you sat and chatted with good old Winnie, and he said that we are doomed. Do you understand? I do. You can trust me. I cannot trust you, said Churchill. But I do trust Gunther. You cannot speak of our conversations. Not now. Not a year from now. Not in your damn memoirs. Is that understood? Tom felt some disappointment, but then chided himself for his shallowness. "'He inclined his head and murmured with soft gravity. "'I so swear.' "'Churchill's eyes seemed to burn into him. "'The moment hung, and then Churchill's broad face broke into a grin. "'So you do. Welcome. "'But I have drifted from your question, which is inexcusable but inevitable. "'I also pick my way through my thoughts. "'You asked if war is inevitable.' This is my answer. I am no longer fighting to prevent war, but to assure my place in the cabinet when it comes. Tom stared at Churchill for a long, long time. The old man held his eyes without smiling, almost gently as a doctor might speak of a sudden mortality. Tom's chin contracted slightly, his nose... "'Stung, his eyes filled. "'But civilization will end with war.' "'But, Tom,' said Churchill softly, "'civilization will end without war, if we surrender. "'And I would rather there be no world than a Nazi world.' "'Tom touched his own cheek. "'So we are all to die.' "'I cannot speak of that.' but we cannot make moral decisions based on their possible consequences. The right action cannot be judged by its effects. We must resist evil, regardless of what happens. To flinch from defending ourselves because we fear the consequences will do nothing but cause our enemies to continually raise the stakes, to make it more dangerous for us to defend ourselves, to make it more unpopular, to sap our will with dire effects. Yes, said Tom. Gunther got up, poured a glass of wine, and handed it over. Tom held it in a limp hand. And England does not have the will to resist at the moment. This is one of those terrible periods in British history when we dither and argue as foemen forge their swords. Churchill smiled. "That is a nice phrase. I shall have to use it somewhere. So Germany shall rearm, and we shall go to war. I continue to speak against what I perceive as inevitable, because the appeasers will be utterly unable to wage a war against those they have claimed to be worthy of negotiation. When they are betrayed by Herr Hitler, they shall be revealed as having betrayed us. The mettle of the people will not rise to save such cowards. The politicians will become confused and depressed. They will be unable to lead the charge with clear consciences. The only men... "'Able to lead in such a dire situation "'will be the men who have opposed appeasement. "'I am the most vocal opponent of these craven compromises. "'When they lead to war, "'I will be the only viable leader if I live that long. "'But I do not think it will be long.' "'Churchill smiled. "'Before five years have passed, "'I shall justify all the money and power my class has possessed "'throughout history.' Tom nodded, wiping his eyes. Churchill laughed. You are also a blubberer. Excellent. We shall get along famously. Winston, said Gunther, we really should get to business. Of course, of course. Here, young man, said Churchill, leaning forward and passing a handkerchief to Tom. It's a lot, I know. Thanks, said Tom. I... I know all this... "'Of course you do,' said Churchill. "'I read about your debate. "'I am just a mouthpiece for people's thoughts. "'I synthesize, condense, and focus. "'That's all a leader can do. "'If no one believes him, he just repeats himself "'until the situation becomes clearer. "'Churchill,' said Gunther. "'He laughed. "'Quite right, quite right. "'Now, let's get to specifics. "'We need a man on the ground in Europe. "'It's really that simple. "'Winston!' cried Gunther in exasperation, glancing at Tom. Lengthy where unnecessary, overshort where details are required. Churchill laughed, lighting another cigar. Be my guest. Take the baton. Our intelligence community is in a shambles, said Gunther, getting up. He coughed, went over, and opened a window. From the outside, it always looks like the house is smoking. We get nothing good from the security service. It's almost the same problem they underestimate german strength because they think that rearmament is a bad idea and everyone loves to play politics so we need to get some good numbers how how can i go about doing that you can't said churchill so we're just outlining the problem said gunther "And i'm long-winded smiled churchill all right we need to get a sense of what's going on around germany in germany if you can but it's risky Germany might start expanding soon, and we want to have someone there on the ground who can let us know what's going on. Could there be any rebellion from within? Uh, What is the mood in the Rhineland, in, in Austria, in Czechoslovakia, all the places with strong German population? Are they dying to reunite with the fatherland? It will all be hearsay, won't it? asked Tom. Yes. Yes, it will, but it's essential. We have to humanize these people. What does the average British man think about Czechoslovakia right now? Nothing. The Poles? Some bad jokes about intelligence. Austrians? Skiing. They don't know that these countries, Poland accepted, are all the vanguards of democracy against Soviet expansionism. If we allow them to get carved up, we lose the chance of a two-front war against Germany, unless the FO negotiates something with Stalin, which seems unlikely given their current attitudes. So... "'And forgive me, uh, but I'm still not sure what you want me to do, Wander around and send my impressions?' Churchill (laughs) guffawed. "'Well... Winston has quite a network of European intelligence,' said Gunther. "'More information flows through here than anywhere except MI5 and the FO.' "'But mine is more accurate,' grunted Churchill. "'The ambassador in Berlin is a flawless bastard.' If he ever sent one actual fact to Whitehall instead of his fatuous opinions, I would give up port. The problem is willpower, Tom. treaties don't mean a damn. The efficiency of our military is important, but still subject to the power of our will. The Great War was a war of attrition. Our blockade finally worked, but only after many years. You can't win a war of attrition without willpower. We cannot beat Hitler and Mussolini and possibly Hirohito of Japan's little Manchurian adventure is an indication, unless we can combine with other European powers. But if the willpower of our European allies is lacking, we shall have to cuddle up to the new world. Tom frowned and held up a hand. What if our allies are weak and the U.S. remains isolationist? There was a long pause. Tom swallowed. "'Never mind,' he said. "'Go on.' "'The will of the leaders is only part of the equation,' continued Churchill. "'Leaders can prod their citizens onto the front, "'but wars cannot be won by soldiers who fear guns both ahead and behind them. "'They lose initiative, morale, and the will to win. "'So I have to know, what are the people of Europe thinking?' "'Tom smiled despite himself. "'He could imagine jotting that down on a to-do list. "'Find out what Europe is thinking.' And we have to humanize them, repeated Gunther. So, short stories and surveys, smiled Tom. Got it. Churchill laughed. No, no, no. We have an assignment for you. What do you mean? The Times, said Gunther. Write articles from Europe. The Times will review them. Tom's jaw dropped. Excuse me? Well, to be frank said Churchill, "'we shall pass on your articles "'to an inside contact who will use them.' "'I haven't got a thread of journalistic experience.' "'You write well,' said Churchill, "'giving Tom a little thrill, "'as Mozart might say, catchy tune. Gunther has shown me our letters, "'but don't worry about that, we have to make Europe real "'to the average British reader, "'not France, that's easy enough, "'but the Eastern States, "'and the German people too, "'if they have hesitations about Hitler.' It would be a stroke of genius to advocate our cause as being sympathetic to the German people who are groaning under a dictatorship of the most brutal kind. But will they really publish such things? We don't know, said Gunther. Certainly not all of them, but maybe very few. But that doesn't matter. We'll get them, absorb them, pass them on. Those that aren't published will still count. Knowledge, any kind of first-hand experience is always crucial. Tom nodded. I understand. And will you do it? Tom did not hesitate. Of course, of course. Churchill slapped his own knee. Good man. Excellent. When? I would like to finish up my current course, training pilots, put in Gunther. Churchill blinked, then laughed. Really? <laughs> oh, I hate to take that skill out of England, but larger paths call. I could leave in under five weeks. That is excellent said Churchill, most satisfactory. He clapped his hands together like a little boy. Now, who wants to help me finish my wall? Martin muses over the morality of Nazism. Martin was not overly surprised to find out that Klaus had joined the Nazi party. His own relationship with the Führer was a complex mix of hope, fear, and disquiet. For Martin, as for most churchmen in Germany, the end of the Weimar Republic had been the end of the 14 years of darkness. The secularism of the 20s, the decadence, the falling church attendance among the young, the hearty scorn of the urban classes, all that had put the churches, both Catholic and Protestant, on the defensive. They could not glower over helpless sinners and force them to kneel, as in the old days. Relativism did not serve the church. The young, bearded, forest-strolling, guitar-strumming-in-commune-living Vondervogel had not flocked to organized religion, not because they did not like religion, they just didn't like organization. But that was all gone now. The Vondervogel were gone, fled imprisoned or dragged into the endless columns of Nazi adherents. Martin should not have been surprised, but he was. He had been a priest long enough to know that every extreme personality trait is secretly united with its opposite. The von der Vogel often made the best Nazis. Those who reject authority, any authority, out of hand, usually make the most terrifying leaders. But now, all that loose, painted, free-thinking nonsense had been brought to heel. Martin, the night that Klaus and Tom had come home late, the night when the radio carried the news of the Nazi victory, had felt a pain between his shoulder blades and imagined that some kind of crusted medieval stone wings were sprouting from his regretfully modern shoulders. It was clear to him. That this was the dawn of a new age, the age of unity, the age of purity, the age of Germany. He had thundered out his approval from his pulpit. His words, he knew, were too complex for his simplistic parishioners, but he could not stop them. A great fire had erupted in his heart and poured thick smoke into the twisting wind of his words. It was a loosening of all restraint, all restraint against some essential purity, and Martin did not try to stop himself or wonder at the source of all his new energy. Some sort of ancient bargain had been reforged. All was once more as it should have been, that fiendish Anglo-French Enlightenment, with all its secular rationality and separation of church and state, had finally been ejected from Germany. The Führer, although a lapsed Catholic, had finally brought the might of his sword to bear on questions of faith. He had concluded a concordant with the Vatican, promising religious freedom for Catholics and allowing the Catholic Church the power to regulate its own affairs. This had all seemed well and good to Martin. The alternative of rank communism with its materialistic atheism and wholesale slaughter of the nuns and clergy had loomed large in his night terrors over the past few years. But now the Nazis were in and the humiliations of 1918 were to be undone. Germany would become strong again and its younger sibling rage against the Enlightenment would finally be allowed to vent its spleen Martin had always loathed the condescension with which the French, English, and to some degree the Americans, had always approached Germany. It was with the maddening politeness of a repressed man visiting an unstable younger brother in an asylum. And how is little backward Germany today, they always asked, feeling all right, not too unsteady. That kind of tone, always and forever present, made Martin's teeth grind, and his hands itched to squeeze something. They were so goddamn smug, those sleek-skinned pastrids. He felt that he had no purchase on such offensive sentiments. I tell them of the passion of my faith. They just pat my head and say, that's nice, although they do not think it is nice at all. They think my faith is childish. To them, my view of the world is much like the finger-painting of a rather backward child. But I am not a child. I shall show them, we shall all show them, the power of the German soul! And so Martin's heart floated up to meet the Fuhrer's empty grin and savage countenance. Here is a man who will bend to no one he thought with dark glee, gazing at a poster of the great man. The resolution in his face was endless, inescapable, like a force of nature. He shall represent us in the world, and he shall never waver or retreat. He shall win for us the respect that is our just due. But something began to happen soon after Hitler signed the concordant with the Vatican in the summer of 1933. Five days afterwards, he approved a sterilization program for the retarded, homeless, vagabond, and criminal elements. This drove the Vatican quite mad. Five days after that, Hitler began the process which led to the dissolution of the Catholic Youth League and its eventual integration into the Hitler Youth. Then, the wave of arrests began. Hundreds of Catholic priests and nuns and lay leaders were arrested and charged with immorality or smuggling foreign currency. The tension seemed to be between, as it had been for England a few centuries before, between the domestic state and a foreign-run church. Hitler could not act too strongly. One-third of Germans were Catholic. However, having given up or their civil liberties and property rights, it was most unlikely that any real opposition would come from the right to freedom of worship. The Protestant churches were, Martin knew, even easier to dominate. The 45 million German Protestants belonged to 18 Lutheran and Reformed denominations. The rise of Nazism had further split the Protestants. From certain circles, there was a great drive to unite National Socialism with protestant theology a new denomination had arisen the german christian faith union which supported hitler's race theories and violently opposed the old testament with its tales of cattle merchants and pimps and took it upon themselves to rewrite the new testament to bring jesus's teachings in line with nazi tenets they demanded that all german pastors take an oath of personal allegiance to hitler and bar converted Jews from their congregations. Their rallying cry, One people! One Reich! One faith! Martin also watched the rise of another Protestant denomination called the Confessional Church, run by a former U-boat commander, Reverend Neumuller. This church also sought to join theology with Nazism, but without having to rewrite the Bible. It rejected the Nazi theories of race, and so did not reject converted Jews or non-Aryans. It did not grant Hitler absolute authority in the spiritual realm. It rejected the Nazi theories of race, and so did not reject converted Jews or non-Aryans. It did not grant Hitler absolute authority in the spiritual realm. It demanded freedom of religious worship. The pastors... Of the confessional church were the first Protestants to feel Hitler's heel on their throats. By arguing for freedom of worship and refusing to condone limitless Nazi power, the Nazis and the confessionals were clearly, to Martin at least, on a collision course from which only one could survive. He was not a betting man, of course, but if he was, he would not have put his money on the church men. Historically, he knew, the church possessed a very weak record of opposing absolutism. Freedom of conscience was a very new concept. Ideally, every man and woman should be allowed to choose their own path, for only free will could lead to God. In theory, an excellent concept. In practice, it emptied the churches quicker than communism. Free people just did not beat a path to the priest's door. If they were not raised in the faith, they almost never came to the faith. Well, except for marriages, baptisms, confirmations, and funerals, which were scarcely enterprises the church could survive on. So, since political freedom clearly benefited only the devil, it could scarcely be a virtue. The republic had almost brought about the collapse of religion. Thus, the end of the republic was the return of God. The coming of the Nazis then gave the church a new lease on life. But since the church was, in the Catholic case, run by foreigners, and in the Protestant case hopelessly divided, the Nazis could scarcely benefit all the various religions at once. This was quite clear to Martin. The robe cannot prevail against the sword. The Nazis had landed, for better or worse. It was better for religion as a whole, but would be worse for specific sects. Martin did not intend to be among the fallen. This decision was reinforced when a wave of terror against a tiny percentage of Protestant clergy who did not wholeheartedly support the regime began in late 1933. Those who preached for freedom of worship were dragged from their pulpits in mid-syllable and viciously beaten in front of their gaping and scattering congregations. Then a dismally dense pastor named Ludwig Müller was forced on the Protestants as head of the newly reformed Reich Church. His goal, direct from Hitler, was to unify and Nazify the German Protestants. This did not bode well for independent thought, and Martin spent many a night in constant prayer. A most subtle test has been loosed upon the world, he thought. Does God want us to join or fight? Religious impulse has been saved by the Nazis, but at the expense of individual conscience. What, oh, what can the answer be? What does God value more, the free will of unredeemed sinners? How can sinners be damned if the church is not there to save them? How can the church save them if they are not free in their belief? God must be chosen, not bullied but when sinners are free to choose they choose the filth of the republic over the glory of god speak to me holy father help me cut this knot god did not see fit to help martin flee his maze the priest accepted this with all humility and understood the problem within a few weeks since this is a question of free will god is allowing me to make the decision on my own but if god is allowing me to make the decision on my own then surely he is implicitly favoring free will but if he is favoring free will then why did he allow the nazis to take control unless the nazis were given power by the devil but if the devil is responsible for the nazis then why are so many more people going to church now If the devil has favoured the Nazis, then surely God must have favoured the Republic, which was a a time of great darkness and confusion for his holy church. And so it would go round and round for hours upon end. Just as he was coming to a conclusion, an error in reasoning or contradiction in history would bring the whole edifice down in a choking cloud of doubt and murk. Normally, in times of spiritual crisis, he would turn to his wife. Martin truly believed in the old German saying about women that their lives contained only church, kitchen, and children. I am too distracted by my knowledge of history and politics, he thought. She, with the touching simplicity of her homely heart, will point the way. But it was not to be. His conversation with her ran thus. Renata, dear, I need your advice on something. Yes? cannot decide whether to speak for the Nazis or against them. Do you love your eldest son?" And that was it. No greater wisdom was forthcoming. She had always seemed such a reliable spiritual guide. On their wedding night, when the filthy deed was done, He had imagined that in the past she would have gladly turned over her children to the Inquisition if she suspected them of witchcraft. She lay, her eyes wide and worshipful, staring at the ceiling, her hands clenched by her side. I am so happy to have given up such pain for God, she whispered. Then I should take you again, thought Martin with sudden vehemence. But he knew he could not. He had barely made it through the first act. But something had changed in her since the ascension of Hitler. She had become more primal, less church and more children. He could not get any sort of political opinions out of her. Before, in the heyday of the hated republic, they had spent many joyful, venomous evenings scorning its decadence and spiritual horror and rejoicing at the coming flames of purgation. And now... Those flames had arrived, and were coursing through the land like a burning river, and virtue walked the hills with fiery whips in its many hands, and Martin rejoiced, though he knew not what to do with his rejoicing. He rejoiced, but Renata did not. And then came that terrible evening, when the radio had spoken of their new master, when Renata had called her children to her as a secular shield which she feared would soon be torn from her flesh. Martin had never spoken of that night. His mind refused to settle on its meaning. Every time it pushed its way into his consciousness, he felt that it represented some terrible gulf between himself and his wife, which it would be a mortal sin to meditate on. She was weakened that night, he thought, his jaw tightening to near whiteness. She was weakened by our common enemy who forever uses secular attachments to tear us from God. How often the eternal spirit is eclipsed by transient flesh! He forgave her, of course, as he forgave everything except the Republic— because she had carried and borne their children in her flesh, and so was more prone to grasping their bodies than saving their souls. This is why God gives us fathers, he reasoned, to save us from the earthly sentimentality of mothers. So he could not turn to Renata. He had never turned to anyone else. He certainly could not turn to any of his children. Klaus was the only one who had even the chance to understand Klaus would sneer at such spiritual matters. Klaus was a platonic realist who had made his choice. He had joined the Nazis. They had never spoken of it. Klaus still lived at home. He worked ferociously hard. He slept five, six hours a night. He trained three rotations of Luftwaffe pilots every day. He had been given a jeep. He slept several nights a week at the aerodrome. Martin had been out to the airfield once with Renata and the other children, and watched a mock air battle and demonstrations of precision bombing. Several thousand people had come to watch the exhibition. Martin and his family were in a prominent position, and he condemned himself several times over the course of the day for indulging in the sin of pride. The crowd had roared in approval, their hands to their faces, as dogfights raged over them and bombs burst in not too distant fields. The young people were in a frenzy. With one voice, they screamed, Heiliger! every time a bomb exploded or an airplane rolled over the crowd. They tried to outshout the noises of war. Their cries mingled with the echoes of the bursting earth and the scream of the sky slashed by metal wings. That day, Martin had watched the crowd searching for invisible attendants. Did angels or devils stand among them? He ground his teeth, unable to see, unable to decide. They were unified but bloodthirsty, happy but virulent. But virulent in what cause? For surely, Christ was virulent in the temple, slashing at the money changers with his whip. He could not decide. He could not decide. And there was something biblical about the sky machines. It was the greatest show of aerial power since Lucifer had fallen. When the earth erupted, Martin imagined that it was the passage of an invisible devil cast down from heaven. As the aeroplanes roared past chasing and weaving, Martin pictured it as an aerial battle of good and evil. And when the day was done, everyone was satisfied. Klaus's face was a picture of pure, satisfied progress. His brothers and sisters swarmed over him, complimenting and offering assistance. The pilots saluted him as he reviewed them, resplendent in his blue uniform, His blonde hair was short. He had lost weight. His short hair made his jaw even more prominent. His thinness brought out the dark circles under his eyes. He was lean, exhausted, and self-satisfied. He had thrown up his objections and found his cause. And Martin envied him. That night he tried to talk it over with his wife, calling over from his own bed. Renata. Renata. Yes. Are you asleep? The oldest joke in the sentient universe swirled in his mind, and he shook his head, annoyed with himself. Did you enjoy today? There was a pause. He knew from old experience that she never, never lied. I was proud of how much he has accomplished. Do you think it will turn out well? I don't know. Martin propped himself up on his elbow and turned to her. I have to make a decision. Yes. Do you think I should support them? I do not think it matters. Excuse me? They are doing well without your support. I think that Klaus's support means more. He was stung but knew better than to oppose his wife's frankness. Do you think they are from God. Everything is from God. Equivocation was the closest she came to lying, he knew. He tried again. Do you think that I should serve them? They are our secular masters. I know. But they are extending their power into the spiritual realm. Hitler is right when he says that his rise was shadowed by more than mortal power. God could have prevented it. Yes, but is it a test? If it is a test, Martin, then you must take it. Her statement electrified him. What? What? But she did not answer. She turned and faced the shadows on the far wall. And he knew he would get nothing more out of her tonight. Take the test? Did that mean... Join the Nazis or fight them? Was the test compliance or rebellion? He tried to turn over in his bed, but was trapped by his wife's confining sheets. Her mother had been a maid, and she knew how a bed should be made. Human beings should be pressed between the sheets like kings and queens in a deck of cards. Martin almost cursed, then wriggled out of his bed. He got up, threw on his dressing gown and slippers. And went downstairs. Klaus was sitting at the kitchen table marking some papers. He looked up with regret as his father padded into the room. ''Don't let me interrupt,'' said Barton. He dipped a stone mug into a barrel of water and sat at the table opposite his son. Klaus's brows were pinched, his pen flew over the paper. ''No,'' he muttered. ''No, good heavens, no!'' "'Nice. That's not even an answer. Idiot. Ha! <laughs> it's basic math.' "'Can't sleep,' said Martin impatiently. A warm milk,' replied Klaus, not looking up. "'Martin was about to say that his son's hair was too short, "'but realized that it was a rather senseless thing to say. "'Leave that to his girlfriend.' "'Not that there were any girlfriends.' One of Martin's great secrets was that he had lived a loose life for over a year before joining the priesthood. Not even Renata knew about that, nor his immediate superiors. He had travelled, drank, danced, fought, and the kinds of women attracted to his gypsy intensity. He saw a life ahead of him without purpose, with a lazy serving of tattered nerve endings. He saw himself falling through the floors of poor quarters to poorer rooms, to a street, perhaps. He could find no life without structure. He could generate nothing from within himself. To find any shape at all, he required a container. Have you never had a girlfriend, Klaus? he asked. Klaus glanced up, grinning ironically. The party is our spouse, they say. What about before, what, English girls? "'Insipid,' he drew the syllables out. "'Never been in love?' "'Not with things of the flesh, father,' he said with a faint, scornful, dutiful voice.
1: "'No, really.
0: Man to man.' Klaus looked up again, and his pen stopped moving. It was only then that Martin realized just how continual the scratching had been, and how cheap the paper must be. "'Man to man.' repeated Klaus. The ironic smile stayed on his lips. "'No, I've never been in love.' "'I love your mother very much, I'm sure. "'A woman is the better half of our faith,' Klaus nodded with a vague kindness. "'What do you think is the relationship between between the church and the Nazis?' Klaus shook his head slightly. "'I am no—' The irritation, as I am constantly reminded. If I were such a thinker, I should never have had to be recruited in the manner that I was. I cannot decide, and that is unusual. What is in your heart? Nothing, nothing that makes sense. I change my mind a thousand times a day. So wait. What? Wait. Don't force a decision. Martin paused, then forward you and your mother klaus smiled you both erupt with these little sayings like tiny volcanoes boom just do this and you're always quite right both of you <laughs> makes me feel like a fool though klaus's expression did not change i know you want to get back to your work good idle hands but but, but what if they come for me asked martin his voice suddenly naked and a little desperate. Klaus leaned forward, and his eyes fell into shadow. If they come for you, father, then you will doubt no more. This statement satisfied Martin at the moment. But when he awoke again, lost in the darkest burrow of night, he found the certainty had fled again. He was not a man to be satisfied with slogans, but slogans were all that was offered.